Esther chapter 9. So on Wednesday night, uh, take a look at my phone, and I noticed that my mother sent me an email, and it's entitled Al, with like all these exclamation marks. I'm like, okay, well, that's weird. What in the world is that? So I, I look it up, and, and my mom writes that, sure enough, there is this, they live in Spokane, Washington. There's this great horned owl that landed on the top of one of their pine trees in the backyard, and she sent me a picture of it. She apparently ran out there on the deck with her iPad and, you know, took a picture of it, and there it is. And she sends it to me, and I'm, and I'm looking, and I'm like, where is the owl? Do you, do you guys see the owl? You know, like, okay, I mean, I'm sure it is. She described that the owl is hunting, that its head can go around 360 degrees, you know, which is pretty fascinating. I mean, can any of you do that? Uh, no? If you can, I'd like to see that after service. Come and show me how that works. Okay. So they, she took the picture of the owl. Now, you know, with phones, you can actually kind of expand that picture. And, and I did, and I was able to start seeing on the top of one of those pine trees, like, yeah, that shouldn't, doesn't look quite right. And apparently they, they have a good friend, uh, Harold Cottett. He's into bird watching. He's got an amazing camera. He shows up with his telephoto lens, and there's a picture of that same owl. I, actually, money buys nice things that make a big difference, don't they? Okay? <laughs> and there is the owl, okay? Now, my mom was talking that you could see the silhouette, and yeah, indeed, you can see the silhouette, but I'll tell you what, the telephoto lens makes a big difference. You start to see all the details of that horned owl right there. Now, I, I tell you that because when you come to the book of Esther... Did you notice that God is never specifically mentioned by name? In fact, no prophet that speaks for God, God doesn't make any major statements. He doesn't speak at all. He's never written about. It's like God could only be seen when you start seeing him in the silhouette. When you talk about a a silhouette, like a painting has great detail, but a silhouette paints a portrait through absence, kind of like this picture of this guy standing at the beach here. You see... The, the man, but you see him in silhouette, but you don't see any of the details. That's kind of how it works in the book of Esther. God is making himself known through the absence of his name, but he is showing his work through the details of the story. And this, if you're new here and you're just showing up here, you showed up on D-Day. This is the day of destruction. This is March 7th, 473 B.C., so you can actually have it specifically in time that all the Jews were, by decree of King Ahasuerus, they were to be eliminated and annihilated. And if we've been going through the book of Esther, you're like, what in the world is going on? God seems absent. He's never mentioned. By the way, why is God's name never mentioned? I'll tell you why. It's actually an amazing literary device that God employs by having us think deeply who is causing all of these remarkable, what the world would call coincidences. How does a young little Jewish girl who's been adopted by a guy named Mordecai end up being the queen of the Persian Empire? How does a person like Mordecai get a job at the king's gate and actually save the king's life but not be rewarded for it until five years later when the number two guy in the Persian Empire, a guy by the name of Haman, who hates the Jews, actually has a decree to annihilate them and kill them on the night that Haman wants to actually kill Mordecai. And in fact, he even has this big stake to impale him built in his front yard. On that very night, the king decides through reading these ancient journals that this guy, Mordecai, has never been rewarded and rewards him. 
In fact, Mordecai rises in power as Haman is discovered and pointed out by the queen that he is the one who is looking to to kill all the Jews, which she herself is Jewish, that Mordecai rises and takes Haman's place as the number two guy, like the vice president, the second in command. And when you look at the book of Esther, you're seeing God in silhouette, working through these amazing details. Don't get the idea that God is absent or pulled away from the world. Like right now, we got all sorts of issues going on in our world, starting off with our government, right? And you're like, whoa, where is God? Everything seems to be spinning out of control. He's never in the news. No one's ever talking about him. But let me assure you, God is mightily at work. And even though this is a day day decreed where the Jews are to face destruction, it is the day of divine reversal. Because you remember when Mordecai was made second in command, he was given the king's signet ring and he made a decree that was signed off by the king that the Jews could defend themselves against any attack on this particular day. And when you are puzzling and wondering where God is, just remember this, like God spoke in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. Let me assure you, God is bringing history, the present and the future to his desired end, even if it doesn't seem like it's working out like we think it should. Dr. A.W. Tozer uh, wrote about this particular uh, event, an analogy to help us to understand like how it works in God's economy. And what he did is he wrote about like a ship liner leaving ship, and this, this steam liner is leaving New York City, and it is making its way to Liverpool, uh, England. And there's a captain of the ship, and he's determined to bring that ship where it needs to be. And no matter what kind of waters that ship faces, whether it be troublesome or it's smooth sailing, and it doesn't matter even what all the people are doing on the boat, whether they're going out for dinner or going dancing or overeating, you know, or buying things or taking in a show, whether they're sinning, whether they're trying to create mutiny, whatever they might be doing, that ship is making the journey and it's going to get to its destination. God is like the captain of the ship. And at times we might be going through some pretty rough waters and you might think you're going to perish. And it seems like everybody's out doing their own program and could care less about God and never references him. Let me assure you, God is at work and you can see him silhouette form. And just like you see him in the book of Esther. Now, I just want you to know that God can bring a divine reversal. He can change it around. And he wants us to be absolutely convinced of his power. And it is like dramatically on display when you come to Esther chapter 9, D-Day, March 7th, 473 BC. Let me tell you that God can turn the heart of a nation. Do you know that? God can turn the heart of a nation. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, the 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed. This is the final month in the Jewish calendar. It is the month that, remember, that Haman went and approached these astrologers and they threw dice down to actually determine what day the gods would want to annihilate the Jews. And this is the day. This is the day of their destruction. And so they're at the 13th day when the king's command and edict 
were about to be executed on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. And this is the key phrase. I want you to see it at the beginning and the end of the passage we're looking at today. It was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. It was turned. When this is used in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, it is always to point out that God, through His divine activity, is bringing about a complete reversal, an ultimate change, a divine reversal to circumstances. So, for instance, remember when Balaam wanted to curse Israel? In fact, he was being paid off to do so. He ended up blessing them. It it said it, it was turned. Remember when the Nile River turned to blood? It was turned. God did it. And God changed the hearts of these people. In fact, the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. And he actually tells us what's going to take place on this day. The Jews are going to able, are able to defend themselves and do. And look at how this nation was changed. Verse 2. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For about eight months, they've been getting ready. They now have the ability to form armies, to get ready to defend themselves. They are ready to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. You see, the people are watching this. This God of Israel, this Yahweh, he changes his people. In fact, he can raise his people where like an orphan Jewish girl becomes queen. Or this Mordecai guy becomes actually the second in command. And their gods, the Persian gods, didn't seem to be overly successful in in defending them off from the Greeks. Now they're witnessing the one true God on display. And they are seeing things they've never seen before. And dread and fear fell upon them. In fact, verse 3, it says, Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. They saw God raised this man up. And they were like, who is this that now the Jewish people can defend them? And their hearts were turned to want to align themselves. In fact, do you remember from last week that it said in verse 17 that actually many of them actually became Jews. They actually turned from whatever pagan faith they had to begin believing in the one true God. Let me tell you, God can turn a nation. We need to remember that and know that as a people. God can do it. In fact, he's got a history of doing it. In fact, he does it right here. Let me tell you something else that God does. God can not only turn the heart of a nation, but he can turn the influence of his people. I want you to take a close look at verse 4. It says, Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, for his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Now, this is pretty amazing for for us to be able to study the life of Mordecai, because he's gone through some pretty difficult days. In fact, there was a death sentence specifically out for him. Remember Haman, when he was the number two guy in charge? He actually wanted to execute Mordecai early, because Mordecai would never bow down. And even in, in Haman's front yard, remember he built that big pole, because that's how the Persians killed people? They impaled them, They drove them through a large stake that they had made to a point, and they planted that in the ground, and they died a horrendous death. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. And Mordecai, if you look at him in the beginning chapters, he's he's weak. He's soft. He acts oftentimes kind of like a coward. He's complacent. 
He's amalgamated in the culture. Remember, he's like, Let's, no one needs to know that we're Jewish. And remember, he's, he's raising Esther, his adopted daughter, but that's actually, Esther's not her real name. You know that, right? Her real name is Hadassah. But that's a Jewish name. And they don't, we don't want anybody to know that we're Jewish. We don't want anybody to know that we follow the one true God. So we're going to change your name. We're going to name you after the goddess of love and war, Ishtar, Esther. And when you look at, you look at Mordecai, he doesn't really begin very well. He's complacent. He's kind of passive aggressive. But then there's some amazing changes that take place. God brings him to a place of humility and repentance. Remember, it was because Haman had, that de- had the king's decree that you ought to bow down every time you see Haman, and Mordecai goes, no way. And then he plays the Jewish card and says, hey, I'm a Jew. I don't need to bow down to you. And that's why Haman wants to kill him. And that's why Haman wanted to kill all the Jews. And when Haman was successful in getting the king to sign off with a signet ring to kill all, kill all the Jews, that's when Mordecai's life became unraveled. That, remember, that's when he broke down? All of a sudden, he tore his clothes, he rolled around in ashes, and he was repenting. He's fasting he, because all the Jews were calling and pleading out to God. And it was the beginning of a new way of living for Mordecai. And Mordecai, he, he actually starts influencing Esther. She, he calls her out to do the right thing, to even put her life on the line because God had raised her up for such a time as this. And he grows in repentance. He starts developing conviction. He's got courage. He develops fortitude, he becomes a different man because he's now starting to walk with God. Let me tell you, that's what God wants to do in all of our lives, to bring about change. And people watch this and they see this. They see the changes are taking place in Mordecai. And you know what happens? When you see a person being turned around by God, people want to follow in their steps because you have something they don't. You want to become a leader Do you want to have influence in our community, in our church, in our country, whether it be in the arena of politics or being a spiritual leader? Let me tell you where it starts. It starts with you being broken and humble before God. And notice, you see he's growing greater and greater. If you're going like, oh man, Grant, it's too late for me. I already set a course for my life. It got probably started in high school, man. It got really wound up when I was in college and I got moving in a direction. And, it, and you're kind of thinking like this way. It's like, even though I see the yellow light and the red light for the intersection, I'm plowing through. I've already set my course and I don't care if that dump truck is coming in on the other side and it's going to T-bone me. I've set my course and I'm moving forward. Friends, if you're thinking that way, you are mistaken and you are buying into a lie. God wants to change your life around. He wants you to experience his power in your life where you'll become greater and greater in his sight. But the only way you're ever going to become a man of integrity, of influence, is if you will stop and repent. It literally means turn 180 degrees in your thinking and in your heart. You don't have to blow up your life. It doesn't have to be a disaster We aren't going to have to always just clean up the pieces if you're willing to go God's way. What will it take? Well, you see, for Mordecai, just kind of like all of us, it takes us bringing God, bringing us to an end of ourselves. We're saying, God, I'm going your way. And I have messed this up tremendously, but I am trusting you to do your work. 
That's what you see Mordecai. He is, he's growing. You see that verse 4? He's getting greater and greater. His influence is broadening. broadening. He's moved from compromise and complacency, and that's now been displaced with devotion and direction. He is God's man. And let me tell you, God is the one who brought about that change. God can turn the heart of a nation, and he can turn the influence of his people. Let me show you something else that God can do. He can turn the outcome of a conflict. Look at verse 5. Now, this is going to be the account of what takes place on this day. The enemies are going to strike. And look at verse 5. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, remember, the decree didn't say the Jews could go and attack. All they could do is defend. And there are mercenaries, soldiers that were likely already pre-paid off by Haman that they knew the day of attack and they'd been preparing for it. There are others that just hated the Jews and thought they could benefit by taking their stuff. They had a divine, they had a, a royal decree to do just that, and so they attacked. Even though they knew the Jews could defend themselves, they kind of thought, you know what? We can. We will. We'll do it for the, the honor of Haman. Remember, he was actually impaled on the very same pike that he had actually designed for Mordecai and they attack and when they do the Jews take them on and actually just like you see in verse 5 that is exactly what King Ahasuerus had said that the uh, Persians could do to the Jews anything they pleased the Jews fight and defend they defend their families their wives their children you're not going to attack you're not going to take our stuff and if you attack us we'll take you on and they fight and they are victorious in fact he starts uh, uh, listing out what takes place. Look at verse 6. At the citadel in Susa, this is the capital city in the Persian Empire, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. That starts to give you a little bit of perspective of what is taking place just in one city. I mean, this was a bloody day of disaster. For the Jews, it was a day of deliverance. For the enemies of God's people, it was a day of destruction. And then there is a listing beginning in verse 7, 7, 8, and 9. There are 10, 10 names, and verse 10 tells us, who are these guys? Pretty interesting. Who do you think they might be? Why are their names recorded? Look at verse 10. These are the 10 sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This is pretty interesting. These, these ten sons, their names, they were named after minor Persian deities. Uh, it's called, uh, these, these, they're called the Datha. And what they, these devas were, is these were my, minor Persian deities, but after Ahasuerus dies, they actually be, they kind of change. Like, these guys aren't so good after all these little gods. They refer to them now as demons. And so Haman's kids are actually even named after these demons. It's one of the ways we can authenticate that this book is genuine. And they actually die. They shouldn't have, though. Think of it. Haman should have told his sons, you better change your ways. Do not go my way. Haman's life was a life of anger and destruction and about pride and about arrogance and when, before Haman died, he should have told his sons, listen, don't go my way. I rebelled against God. I fought against his people. 
I took on the God of Israel and I was wrong. Don't try to go fight for my honor because I'm a dishonorable man. Don't end up like I have ended up. But they don't. In fact, he never does. It's really interesting. Haman could have had a major turn once he saw that God was fighting for his people and saw that he was really aligned himself against the one true God, there could have been a dramatic change in his life, but there wasn't. Just like in your life, there could be a dramatic change if you're going in the wrong direction. I want you to think of a completely different reality for your future. If you're right here today and you're presently kind of doing your own program, you're a rather self-centered individual, and it's all about you, It's not to say that you don't have faith in some sort of religious system or some sort of gods. You need to know that you could have a different future. You could have kids or grandkids that one day speak of the greatness of a man who repented, humbled himself before God, and started following God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. You could actually change the whole trajectory of where you're going. But the problem is, is that we always are finding excuses. It's my genetics. It's my background. And we have all these reasons why we don't repent and we don't humble ourselves before the one true God. But I want you to know it doesn't have to be that way for you. Things can change. There's an interesting verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says this, that knowing that you were redeemed not redeemed from perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life but with, from, that you inherited from your forefathers, but from the, with the precious blood of the lamb who has actually been sacrificed on your behalf. God wants to change his people, and let me tell you how he does it. He does it when you trust in Jesus Christ. There is a literal, literal turning of your life. Now, for the... Uh, For Haman and his kids, it had been a thousand-year war for them. They had for a thousand years, generation after generation, they'd been worshiping their false gods, they'd been attacking God's people, and that is their legacy. It could have changed with Haman. It could have been different for his boys. And let me just ask you, how long has it been going on in your family? How long has it been in your family where it's been on a trajectory that has always walked away with God? walked from him, done the wrong thing, ignored him. How long has it been? You might not be the first in line. Let me tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. What is it going to take for it to stop? What does God have to do to bring you to the end of yourself? What what does God have to do for you to realize he is truly the God of the universe And he does not want you to keep walking away from him. What will it take for a change of heart? That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that God has taken his just wrath against sin. He has poured it out on his son. And any who will believe in him can have forgiveness of sins and a true new life. It is the ultimate divine reversal. And think of it. You could even right now, you could repent. You could say, God, I'm, not, I'm sorry not only for what I've done, but for who I've been. And I'm, I'm turning from my sin, and I am trusting you, and I want you to be the king of my life instead of me. God is in the business of doing that, and you could be the link in a family change that changes everything. But you know what? For Haman, 
He didn't do it, did he? You ever heard this phrase? Like father, like son? What is the course that you are setting for your kids? What are they learning from your example? Is there, are you kind of like Mordecai? Maybe you've been complacent, but God's got a hold of your life and you're on a whole new trajectory. Now you've become a man of influence. You're godly. God is doing a major work through your life. Are you going to be like Haman? Like, no, I kind of set my course. I'm going to die and I'm going to die a brutal death and I'm not going to warn my kids and they're going to follow in my footsteps. What will it be for you? I can tell you, God can turn it and can change your lives. He is in the business of doing so through those who trust his son. Let me show you something else here. We're looking at this. Haman and his sons, they perish. And notice what it says. But the Jews did not lay their hands on their plunder. This wasn't about them taking their enemy stuff. It was all about self-defense. Now, verse 11 says, Now on that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported the king. The king gets reports. Let me assure you, he's kind of paying attention to what's going on in his empire, about 3 million square miles. And he's getting reports of what's going on. Look at verse 12. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. In my capital city, 500 guys have died. All the Haman's sons, all 10 of them, they're dead. And then he asked this question like, well, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Okay, they don't have email and instantaneous reports. He's like, if this happened in the capital city, what has gone on in my empire? And it's not like Esther's the one who knows all this information. He's, he's throwing it out there. He's just like, what's going on? But Esther has a petition. And look at this in verse 12. He says, now what is your petition? It shall even be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Esther apparently is aware that even though the Jews have been able to defend themselves by law for one day, there is something going to take place on the next day that they have no decree to fight against. And so verse 13, then said Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today and let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. Okay, whoa, what's going on here? Okay, first of all, she apparently has become aware that there's going to be another counterattack on the day that the Jews do not have a legal right to defend themselves the next day. And this, you might see this request here about hanging the ten sons on the gallows, and you're like, this is ethically and morally disturbing, okay? Apparently, this was never on the little flannel graph that you might have saw on Sunday school when you studied Esther, right? Okay? They kind of skip this part, right? They just move right on by there. We're not going to talk about that. But let me tell you, and this is the custom of ancient warfare. When you defeated your enemies, you put them on display. Like, for instance, when King Saul and his sons were killed, the Philistines, like, they actually nailed their bodies to the wall in Bethshan. And there's something that's taking place. You see, the Jews still have enemies. All of Haman's sons went after them. There are still people that hate them. And she probably has gotten word that there is on the very next day, that's when the slaughter is going to take place. So she says, I want them, those sons, impaled, and I want the Jews to have a right to defend themselves for one more day. And you're going to find out that she is right. So she makes this request in verse 14, so the king commanded that it should be done so, and the edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. Now, this is really interesting. In the Hebrew scriptures, okay, in the Old Testament, when they write it out in Hebrew, 
Uh, here's a copy from my Hebrew Bible. You see how they're the, these are the names of Haman's sons. They're written in columns. This is the only place in the Hebrew Scriptures wherever it occurs like this. The scribes, when they wrote their names, wrote them to show you visually that they were impaled, to show that God was accomplishing his purposes. He will defend himself and his people from their enemies. And this literally took place. So what is going to happen on the next day? Verse 15. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. So this is the very next day. And sure enough, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. So the very next day, there was again an attack. And the Jews had a right to defend themselves, and they do. And so we find out here that they defended themselves. And now, verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend them, their lives and rid themselves of their enemies. And what took place? Here's kind of a synopsis of what took place when the Jews had the ability by royal decree to defend themselves. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them but they did not lay hands on their plunder. They weren't seeking their stuff. They were just seeking to defend themselves. That you will not attack my wife. That you will not kill my children. That you will not take my stuff. 75,000. That's a pretty staggering number. You would have thought that, you know, with all the changing of heart that was taking place in the Jewish, among the people, to the Jewish people, that they would have backed off. But hatred runs deep, doesn't it? So you see this. You see that they actually were after him. Let me, let me tell you that God will always defend his people. Now, it may not be that he always just preserves their life in this lifetime, but they will experience his ultimate victory. But remember when God made his promise and covenant with Abraham, he said this, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. It's like this. It doesn't mean that God has necessarily approved of everything the people of Israel have done or all the Jewish people have done. Not by a long shot, but I will tell you this. Whether you be Pharaoh in Egypt, whether you be Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, whether you be Haman in Persia or Hitler in Germany, when you fight against God's people, specifically the Jewish people, you're going to take on the Almighty himself. It's like J. Vernon McGee said, the Jewish people have attended the funeral of every one of the nations who have tried to exterminate them. And so we see that, that God, he works it out, that his people can defend themselves, and so they do. Now, there's something I want you to see here. God can also take the sorrow of life, and he can turn it to joy. Look at verse 18. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th day of the same month, and they were rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. And so they started to celebrate the fact that God had preserved them, and it became an annual observance. And verse 20, then Mordecai recorded these events. He liked he had this written in the annals of Persia. And he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually, because I want you to see this, verse 22, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month, and here's our phrase again, 
it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Why has God recorded these events? Why is this so important? It's not that we go, oh, that's a cool story about Esther and Mordecai. God has some far greater purposes than that. God wants us to be encouraged and to have hope and to persevere. There is a great verse in the Bible in Romans 15, verse 4, and it says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God has written these things down so that we will persevere through our difficulties and that through the encouragement of the scripture, we read the book of Esther and our heart is encouraged that we know that our God is able and he can turn it around, that he is a conqueror and a victor and he is a protector of his people. And our, our lives are different because we're living with the reality that our God is able. He can accomplish a divine reversal. And it's kind of like this, friends. The God who can turn the course of history can transform my life and my world today. We need to know that and believe it. You know, God may change your circumstances. What are you in right now? What are your circumstances? God can change that. God may change like the spread of cancer and cause it to halt. He could make you even cancer-free. We got people in our church that today they could say, I'm cancer free. You know who did that, don't you? God did. God can help a person or a family recover from major financial problems. You made a mess of everything. You didn't really understand how credit cards work. You just thought, oh, man, everybody does this. And you put yourself in a world of problems, but you saw that God brought you out. You developed discipline and you learned principles of how to spend your money and how to save it. God did it. Has there been a healing of a relationship that was broken, devastated? Well, now, all of a sudden, that's been reconciled. You know what? God can do it. He can turn it around. But let me also tell you this. God always is in the process of changing his people. God very, very, very well change us. Like, for instance, you might find joy in Christ even in the midst of a body that is completely breaking down and you don't recover. And yet, you still believe and you still have joy. Or that when you find a soul that perseveres and even when they're dying, they are still believing, that is God at work in a heart like that. Or when you see a, purpose, a person that has life purpose and where they're glorifying God, and even when they go through great difficulty and disappointment and life is not working out, but they are still holding on by faith, let me tell you that it is God who is doing that. He is a God who can turn it. And it's kind of like that telephoto lens that Harold has. You take that telephoto lens and you put it on that silhouette and all of a sudden you see the details of God at work in our midst and that's how he wants his people to live. He wants us to live with a faith that God is able and the God who can turn the course of history can transform my life and my world today. God can work no matter whether you've been complacent, you came from a godly family, but you've been kind of out on your own, doing life on your own, or you've come from a generation after generation of people that have just rebelled and been basically indifferent toward God, 
God can turn it around. And he wants to do it starting today. Let me just tell you about our God. He can work through our failures and our tragedies. That is not the end of your story. It can change, and it can change today if you're willing to trust God. And ultimately, let me tell you about the ultimate divine reversal. God is going to change it all around when we enter into eternity. Do you know that there is going to be an irrevocable reversal? The sick are going to be made well. The lame are going to run. The hungry are going to eat with Jesus. The blind are going to see. Those who felt like they are hopeless are going to be filled with an exuberance hope that will take them through eternity. Those who have been made, been hurt, faced great tragedy and hardship and have been run over and marginalized, they are going to receive justice and the dead will rise again because you know why? God is a God who brings divine reversal. He's the living God. He's alive today. And he's changing lives, even this moment. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you with these dear people. And God, we need you. And we need to have hearts that see your goodness and your greatness. Lord, I just would like to lift up people that have come here today who perhaps they feel like they've been on a one-way to tragedy and destruction. But you have used this text to show them your goodness and your greatness. And they just pray with me and say, God, I, I finally get it. And I'm, I'm turning from myself and my sin, and I am trusting your son, Jesus, as my Savior. And Lord, would you be the king of my life? And Father, for those of us who do know you, Lord, fill us with the hope and the encouragement of the scriptures. Give us faith and the ability to persevere, to see you at work in the details and to have faith even when we can't exactly say how it's all working out. For you're our God and we know that you're ultimately control. You're going to bring this ship to your desired end. And we praise you and worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.